0: From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. On the show today, I have guest Wayne Kaputh. Wayne Booth is an author. Um, you might know him mostly from the Golden Age of Waterfowling, and he has lots of other books. But um, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be at Du always, Du headquarters sets in a ideal surroundings. It's just you don't even know you're in Memphis. So I recommend you visit the place when you come to town, or if you live here and then been
2: here. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny you mentioned that. I didn't even think about this, but we've never really talked about on this show. The history of why we're here, which you would probably know a little bit about too, but um, why we're in Memphis and why we're where we are exactly, and that's because of Mr. Billy Donovan. Did you know Mr. Billy Donovan? I did, I did
1: not. I do not know him. I know of him, you know, and yeah. what he, he mentions.
2: Yeah. I don't yeah.
1: know if y'all really know. Do you really know how... The DU chapter in Memphis got started?
2: I did not know how the DU Memphis...
1: Yeah. Well, do you want to... <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You want to start off... I didn't know off, we
2: were going to talk about or that, Or did you, you want to start fine. off
1: with this first? No,
2: let's talk about that. That's I didn't know about okay, that. Okay, so as cool. everybody
1: probably knows, or maybe they don't know, if they don't know, it got started in 1937,
2: and... Well, I don't know how DU got started, but in Memphis, chapter. yeah. yeah I'm, yeah. I'm going to get to that. Okay. DU
1: started in uh, 1937, and its founders were Joseph Knapp and Arthur Barkley. Bar- and in 1937, in the summer of 1937, the Memphis Sportsman's organized a DU state chapter. And at the initial gathering of DU in Memphis, W. Lucia Oaks of Memphis was selected chairman of the Tennessee committee.
2: I didn't realize it was happened that to early. Have
1: a pin that was given to all the 1937 members that joined DU. That's that amazing. was issued by the national DU people. But anyway, D.U. sent uh, C.W. Watson of New York City to meet with the sportsmen of the Memphis area. They met at the Peabody Hotel on November the 1st, 1937. And if you don't know about the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, you need to know about it, too. Yeah, you do, yeah. You need to visit Mm -hmm. the ducks that come down from the uh, upper floor there to the lobby twice a day. And uh, they have been doing that since 1933. And that's a story within itself. But anyway, back to DU. So C.W. Watson of New York was sent by uh, DU to meet with the Memphis DU group at, at the Peabody Hotel November 37. And Watson at that time predicted that the government would place a ban against the shooting of ducks because of the low numbers. And the only way to remedy this, according to DU, was to invest money and effort in the duck factories in the Canadian provinces. He told the gathering that that sportsmen in 45 states had organized chapters also and that approximately 300,000 had been pledged already. The quota in Tennessee was set at $5,000 a year. The Tennessee chapter had subscribed about half of that by the time of his visit. So a committee was formed in Memphis with the purpose of contacting all the members of all the duck hunting clubs in the Memphis area with a view of raising memberships, hoping to reach 1,000. And raising the Tennessee money pledges by the time the duck season opened on November the twenty-seventh of that year, you have to remember in thirty-seven we had gone through uh, really the Great Depression, and we also, which was significant to the duck population, and really probably this organization, the DU, was Dust Bow years which started in 1929 and lasted to the upper to middle part of the 30, 30, uh, decade of the 30s. And so the duck population had really suffered during this time. So DU was right on the money when they got started. Anyway, instead of $5,000, which they DU wanted from the national organization, they raised $10,000. And DU began work on the prairies, began in 1938, a year later. And it's really only fitting that DU moved its headquarters to Memphis in 1992 through the efforts, as she mentioned, uh, Memphian William B. Donovan. The organization is the world, for everybody to know, and I'm sitting here plugging DU, which I should. (laughs) The organization is the world's largest private wetlands and waterfowl association. It has more than 500,000 members and 1,100 wetlands restoration projects in the United States, and that involves uh, the 100,000 acres of former wetlands habitat. So if you're not a member of DU, I recommend you join it. Because even if you're not a duck hunter, it's a worthwhile project.
2: So I did not realize the Memphis chapter was a, within the first year. Although I should not be surprised considering um, Nash Buckingham's involvement with DU, with DU and American also Waterfowlers. American Waterfowlers, the, pre- Wildfowlers, Waterfowlers, the predecessors yeah. of DU. So that's that. that should have been obvious, but I did not realize they had a chapter formed so early. And what do you think about, like with, because we're going to talk about duck clubs, but because there were so many clubs formed within the Memphis area, and, and one of the things I have, we can talk about a little bit more, we can get more into as we go along, but duck clubs really were the first places to kind of have limits and really kind of control what they were doing. You know, they they talk about how duck clubs, like they'd have like 50 50 duck limits per person, but that was conservative. They weren't just shooting whatever they wanted. They were actually, you know, they'd have days where they couldn't shoot. They do a lot of things like that. So, what, is, what do you think that the role of the prominence of duck clubs in this area played towards them being one of the first chapters?
1: Actually, the first club, and it wasn't necessarily a, a waterfowl club, but it was actually the first hunting club in the Memphis area, is the Fur, Fin, and Feather Club. And it got started in 1868. So they hunted all game, but mostly quail. And they lobbied the Tennessee Legislature. To pass game laws which would provide more protection for quail, which were being shot and trapped to extreme, even at that date, and even after the Civil War, when the Southern boys they didn't do any hunting; right, they were no. too busy.
2: Yeah, all now that wasn't true area. in the North.
1: The North, very especially the, the upper tier states, they continued to hunt, right. and and the clubs continued to operate. Mm-hmm. But anyway, then we had the Wapanaka Outing Club, which I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, but it set a limit of fifty day fifty ducks per day in eighteen ninety-five. That's early.
2: That's very early, yeah. yes.
1: Beaver Dam, now I mentioned in two clubs here. These were very the probably the two most important clubs that Nash had the most respect for was Beaver Dam Ducking Club in Tunica County, Mississippi. Uh and then the Wapanaka Outing Club near Turtle, Arkansas. Uh I just mentioned Wapanaka, but Beaver Dam, which was down at Tunica Lake in Tunica County, Mississippi, which is about 30 miles south of Memphis. They set a limit of 50 ducks also. That was in 1899, four years later. And by the start of the 20th century, Mid-South hunting clubs had reduced the limit on wood ducks to 25 and put the season back to August. Now, for those who don't know, in this area, they hunted wood ducks starting in July
2: Wow! <laughs> so they
1: crazy. moved it back about to a- August, <laughs> and at that time in uh, July and August, you could use a retriever, either a pointer or a setter. You didn't need a long-haired Chesapeake or a, a Labrador. Yeah. Okay, obviously, when the duck season starts, we may get into retrievers, but the Labradors and retrievers would take over during the cold weather. Uh, and a few years later, most clubs had set a limit of twenty-five. So you know they were. You know, it's just not in the mishap at all across the nation. Duck clubs were the were the leaders, and their members, mm-hmm. uh, and other clubs like the Bloon and Crockett and things like that were involved in conservation. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. You just, I don't think people realize like because if you go through um, American, the first time you really see it like, except like if you go into these histories of the clubs themselves. But if you go into American waterfowlers, we actually have. Um, or their minutes from their earliest meetings. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's really great. And um, and you go through the minutes, and they you can hit, they mention, and uh, there's mention of like they're not concerned about the clubs. That's like they're like that's already being they're not really that concerned. And maybe we should think about organizing around the way that they have organized taking ducks. I mean, eventually it, it does go down even less. But I didn't realize until. I was going through researching for this that they late in the later years they didn't even allow pump shotguns.
1: Well, they tried. You know, the American Wildfowlers Association, which you know Nash Buckingham was the secretary. They tried their best to limit Nash, especially tried to limit uh, the automatics. Mm-hmm. You know, the pumps and the
2: yeah, I didn't realize.
1: automatic, yeah,
2: yeah, that's really interesting. Well, we kind of skipped your introduction. Oh, completely. Oh, yeah. Well. So, but, um I was listening either on another podcast and you introduced her there, but there was one part that I really just selfishly wanted to hear about. So um, you said you got started hunting around Big Hill Pond area, which is outside of Memphis. And I run out there all the time. And I never thought about people duck hunting there. I mean, it's
1: I saw. I missed you
2: at Big Hill Pond. Big, <laughs> and I really wanted to hear all about because I run well, out there all the time, and it's swampy.
1: Well, but- my mom and dad grew up in Schwaller and Raymer, Tennessee, which is about seventy miles east of Memphis on Highway Fifty Seven, which is just Poplar Avenue. If you keep going east through Memphis and Collierville, you'll come into Fifty Seven. So they they lived out. Dad moved to Memphis in uh, forty two. I was born in forty four in Memphis, and he had we had relatives back in. Raymer and Shawala from Mom and Dad. So I was back there quite a bit in the summer and back there in the in the uh, hunting season because that's where I grew up. Being a southern boy, I was blooded in the hunting and in, in uh, at ten years of age, squirrel right. hunting and rabbit hunting and coon hunting. Uh, and I was blood hunting coon, uh, squirrel hunting because Daddy turned me over to Levi uh Baxter or Levi uh Baxter, yeah, which was a a black fella that lived right next to him in Raymer, in Raymer. And uh we he went squirrel hunting with Daddy and me and Daddy let me go with Levi and Levi was an expert. But anyway, I killed my first squirrel and Levi blooded me by getting some blood off of my first squirrel and taking his two fingers, his index and middle finger and streaking across my cheek. But I'm making a long story here. But anyway <laughs> we
2: like long stories. I, so I
1: gravitated from the quail uh, from uh um, Squirrel and rabbits and occasional coon hunting to quail. And I did that for a number of years. And I was out quail hunting one day with Dell Locke, which, who lived there. And he had a set of pointers and setters. And we uh, were hunting a bean field along the edge of a, of a wood line. And I happened to we happened to wrap around the wood line in the open field and uh, still in the bean field. And there was a puddle of water. It had rained previously to that. And there was a puddle of water filled with a hen and a drake, mallard. And they both got up, and I looked, and it was sunshine blind, and that green head shining and everything. I said, man, that's for me. So I got into (laughs) duck hunting. So up between Pocahontas, which was west of Raymer, about 20 miles, there's a hilly section that starts real hilly. And there's a place called (laughs) Big Hill Pond. Now it's a state park called Big Hill State Pond. But back then, it wasn't. So I grew up squirrel hunting there and, and quail. And there was a Tuscumbee River comes in through there, and it had a big swampy area. Mm-hmm. Now, what they got is the Big Hill Pond now is not the actual old Bill Hill, Big Hill Pond. It was down the railroad way track.
2: So the railroad track was there? Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: So it was a marshy area. That's a Southern Railroad that got started in 1857 and went from Memphis to LaGrange Tennessee, and then on to Charleston, South Carolina. Okay, and it was called the Memphis and Charleston Railroad. But anyway, so the, if there was a big swampy area off that uh, Tuscumbia bottom, and I—that's where I started duck hunting. Uh, and you had to get. Although my great uncle owned it, John Howell, and lived right on the spot, he didn't control it. An old swamp angel. Owned it swamp by age. living over there on the Tuscumbee River, by, by the swamp area. Oh,
2: so we had swamp angels in Tennessee. I don't even think of them out South Louisiana. No, it was
1: but. swamp. So he, had, <laughs> I, you had to get permission from the swamp angel to be able to hunt there, which I did. I took him a bottle of fifth of whiskey and everything. That <laughs> cooled everything. So we started hunting there, and uh, and it was, we'd get there early in the morning and stay to dark, and it was a roosting place. And we were illegal, but we were shooting after dark. And you see that that flare
2: of
1: yeah. fire uh, flash yeah, yeah. coming out of the end of that barrel a foot long shooting those ducks. But anyway, I got started there and then went to Arkansas and hunted, uh, I'd say, Arkansas from probably 65 to 82. And that's when I sort of got fed up with Arkansas because of all of the, the sky busting and, and, the, and the public hunting aspect of it. And that's when I went to Mississippi. In 1983, uh, (laughs) down around Charleston and joined a uh, club called Wild Wings down there. But folks, I sit there and watched uh, Mississippi from 83 to 98 when I finally left Mississippi. Uh, I saw it develop just like Arkansas had 25 years ago. When I went down there, everybody deer hunted, all the locals, very little duck hunting. So I had the place to myself. Although I was a member of the Wild Wings, every afternoon I'd go scout. If it wasn't ducks on my place, I would go scout the countryside, and you could just hunt anywhere you want to. Because every other year, Tallahatchie River ran through there was flooded, and it had a lot of flooded water. So, and then there got to be more and more pump water and more and more duck hunters and everything. But the but the hunting was just outstanding down there. I just, you know, everybody has their own aspect of what a lot of ducks is, but I. It was a lot of ducks. Okay. Uh, and then I went back to Arkansas in 98 uh, okay. and got back to hunting in, over there.
2: So, where are you hunting in Arkansas now? Uh,
1: I tell you, I haven't hunted. Let, let me give a piece of advice here, but I had not hunted in two years. I grew up, Dad didn't require us. He didn't wear earplugs, and I didn't either. Yeah. I,
2: and so yeah, I'm, I I'm
1: that 100% now. deaf in the left ear and 50% in the right ear. And I just can't hunt. Anymore to protect that because the blast of the muzzle and everything. Mm-hmm. So I haven't hunted it in two or three years.
2: Yeah, I I, I feel yeah. I um luckily I think I think this next generation, my kids, will probably be the first ones to keep their hearing because yeah. I have tonight is so bad from it from the same thing and we never wore hearing protection. But I make my kids so yeah. <laughs> hopefully that's good. they can and hear. If but, you're
1: listening out there, do the same. Yeah. I tell you,
2: you don't want to hear ringing in your ears for the rest no. of your life. Um. I have some selfish questions. So I did not know. So I grew up hunting. When he talked to me, we went to Mississippi. I grew up right there in Tallahatchie County, hunting in that whole area. And then in your book, you mentioned one club that I didn't even know existed. It's just right there where I hunted. Hold on. I have your book. I didn't know Bailey. Oh no, the Paducah Wells.
1: Paducah Wells. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I didn't know that existed. No, I was. We were members of Bailey Break. So, and my dad was one of the forming members of Bailey Break. But Paducah Wells would have been way before that, and I did not realize there was a club there.
1: Well, there wasn't. You know, Mississippi didn't. I say Mississippi was mainly a deer hunting uh, state. You know, they had some really. Good waterfowling clubs. Uh, I mentioned one, Beaver Dam, is probably one of the best in in the world at that time. And then Snow Lake down in Greenville, Mississippi, was another good Mm -hmm. club. But uh, in between there, there wasn't that many. Yeah. But, you know, Tallahatchie County and the floor and Webb and all of those places, just really good for duck hunting for Mississippi. Oh, yeah. That's where most of the ducks in Mississippi hang out.
2: Right. And at at that time when the the Paducah Wells I mean, there was a lot of forest still at that point. Oh, yeah. I mean, not so much anymore. Yeah. And, but well, it was. wasn't but
1: in the 50s, 1950s that they started in and clearing a lot of that right. timber for uh, beans. And then rice started coming in.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's Yeah, it's still there, but yeah, the mechanization did a lot of it. But yeah, we talked about the Mississippi clubs. So one of the questions I had to ask about, although there's a lot of them I want to talk about, but of all the historic clubs, which ones of the early ones are still around oh, today?
1: None in Mississippi that I know of. In Tennessee, Blue Wings Hunting Club, Union City Hunting Club is still going. And that's the only two I know of there because the state came in and got that all of that land. So a right. lot of the duck hunting clubs there went out of business. And
2: that's a pretty common way yep. for the duck clubs to break up, right?
1: Well, the two, you know... Uh, like I, I've mentioned Wappanaka Outing Club in, in Arkansas, I guess if we went back in the uh, 1900s to the 1960s when it closed down in 1964 and became a national wildlife refuge, but if you asked across the nation, you know, Oregon, I don't care where you are, New York, what clubs they would mention. They would mention Wapanaka out in club because mm-hmm. it was the club and they made right. it a, a national, the feds made it a national wildlife rescue in 1964. Uh, but in Arkansas, you have Hatchie Coon. Okay. And Oak,
2: that was originally, that had a different name originally, right? No,
1: it was Hatchie Coon, but it merged with Oak Donnick and Osceola okay. Ducking and That's Trolling what I'm Club. Of. Okay. And we can get into the Really? Yeah. The earliest duck club you went to. But anyway, it merged. It's still in existence. It's got that club started in 1889. Then you have Five Lakes on Horseshoe Lake. Then you have Meninche, which is just north of Wapanaka, and it's about 30 miles uh, north of Memphis. After you cross the bridge and you go straight north, it would be where Wapanaka is 25. Men and Shea is about 30 miles. Okay. Uh, and then you have uh, OK Hunting Club. Uh, that's in Poinsett County. And in that area, Poinsett and Craghead County, you you got a whole lot of clubs. Now, they called Sudgard the duck capital of the world. Right. But that area around Wiener, yeah. Arkansas, became the new duck capital of the world, according to some people, mm-hmm. which doesn't make Sudgard too happy. No. But that happened in 1955 when uh, Wallace Claypool started Wild Acres at Wiener. But anyway, in that area, is you've got... Greasy Slough, you got OK Hunting Club, you got Paragu Hunting Club, you got the Mark Tree Hunting Club, uh, the Greasy Slough if I didn't mention that. So yeah. and Hood Lake Hunting Club. So in that probably in that hundred mile radius there, you got some of the ten and they're all still going except for Hood Lake.
2: Except for Hood Lake. So are the memberships have they like have any of the same families stayed in there or how, do they just the memberships expand like i tell you, States.
1: okay, and, and the Greasy Sleuth tend to pass it down, and there's another tr- tr- uh, club right in there, Mark Tree, and it tends to pass down, too. Of course, uh, Wallace Claypool's Wild Acres, which he started in 42, has still been passed down by... Wallace Claypool was a Memphis. We mm-hmm. want to get into Wild Acres? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and uh, Wallace Claypool was, had the Buick dealership here in Memphis, and he... Uh, he really was a golfer. Okay. And then he got started uh, duck hunting by Chip Barwick, which was his competitor who owned the the Chevrolet dealership here in Memphis. And Chip hunted around Hayes in Arkansas. And people don't know who Hayes and That's in the Grand Prairie area north of Stuttgart. So he got started uh, hunting there. He, he gravitated actually to uh, with Wallace Claypool, got hooked up with him, uh, when Claypool went in 1929 to Vern Tindall's Reservoir, mm-hmm. and that's a story in itself too. Right. But uh, he hunted there. Anyway, Claypool went on and hunted at, I mean, some of the best places. Vern Tindall's Reservoir, uh, Wallace Claypool's Place, Hatchie Coon Hunting Club. And then he, he kept looking for his own place and wanted his own place. So he, he uh, J. Roger Crow out of Stuttgart hooked him up with a place in... Um, around Wiener, just east of Wiener. five thousand acres, he sold fifteen after he bought it. So he had thirty five hundred acres left. And out of that he made a fourteen hundred acre reservoir, which 18, 800 stays flooded all the time. Okay. And at that time rice was all over around that place. Right, rice had, when
2: did rice move across to the ri- across the ridge?
1: Anyway, rice was already everywhere and around Wiener. It had already spread from uh Gillette, DeWitt in Stuttgart okay. northward and it kept and it still it kept going till northeast or fort uh, southeast Missouri yeah. in the sunk lands down there. But anyway, so he he, he did that in forty two. By forty four he had about two hundred thousand ducks. Because the ducks would feed during the rice fields at night and come into his place for rest. A lot, a lot of green green timber, duck hunting there. 400 was open water of the 800 flooded, and rest was green timber. Even in 1944, when he had 200,000 ducks during the duck season, this wasn't a guess. This was estimates by the Fishing you know, Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. At Millington, they used to have a Navy base, and they had air, air pilots out there, and they'd come and buzz his place, his reservoir, just for flight training. <laughs> and they'll get down low and buzz that thing and it'd scare up all those ducks. And <laughs> ducks were everywhere. Yeah.
2: They've- if people, I don't know if y'all, if some people might be familiar with the famous Claypool picture. Yeah. And it's just, it's black. Yeah. Yeah, full of ducks.
1: <laughs> so anyway, year after year, quarter of a million, the estimates up to 350. Some, some people said even 500,000 ducks. I don't know, most people won't know who Dave Garroway, but he used to have a Sunday show on NBC, live telecast. And he'd do different stories across the country for his live telecast every Sunday. It lasted an hour and a half. He was doing, in 1955, a live broadcast on the governor, I think it was Falvis, his governor race in Arkansas, and they were doing White River catfish and a couple of Arkansas game and fish commission, George Purvis, and Tom Moyle was involved in that far as doing the filming of it so it could be broadcast. And while they fin- they finished that up, and uh, after that, uh, Garraway asked uh, Tom Mull and, and Purvis, George Purvis, like I said, was Arkansas Game and Fish Commissioners, if there was something else they could do. And they said, yeah, we, why don't you come back and we'll do a duck hunt at, at Wallace Claypool's Reservoir. So anyway, and, and uh, December the 23rd, two days before Christmas, they came back. To do a live, it's supposed to be about four minutes, but it ended up being seven and a half minutes because there were so many ducks. Yeah. But anyway, at that time they had on wild, Wallace Acres, Acres Clay at uh, Wallace Claypool's Wild Acres. George Purvis, who I just mentioned, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, got hooked up with uh, Claypool in '54 and started filming all the ducks so they could do educational programs for their game and fish when they went out to do uh, meetings and things. And so. Purvis was involved with the uh, uh, Dave Garraway program, and he and he was up in a 40-foot blind in a tree filming, doing part of the filming. Tom O was uh, down below in a blind doing the narration for the broadcast. And uh, at a given time, directed by New York to, to the uh, Wild Acres, they were to explode across the lake three canisters of TNT, and the person that was handling the TNT was was Herb Parsons. And yeah. for those who don't know, huh. Herb, Herb worked for the Winchester Western Co- Company. He was their exhibition shooter. And uh, he was the one that was going to fire off three can- canisters of TNT because he did it for every time he'd go to a city to demonstrate his shooting ability. He'd go in the center of town or just outside of town and far off the canisters to get everybody's attention. So they'd come and see what was going on. He had to have. A, oh, I he, didn't
2: realize that. And yeah. He would
1: have their attention so he could tell them about the exhibition he was going to put on the next. <laughs> so anyway, he shot the canisters and that's they exploded. And when it did, there was ducks from water level to the highest stratosphere from left to right. And they were going bunkers in New York at the headquarters. They were shaving time off other programs that they had planned and extended it from four and a half minutes to seven and a half minutes. And Garraway says at the end of this program, if you'll dust the duck feathers off of your sofa, we'll get on with the rest of the program.
2: (laughs) That's crazy. I didn't realize that. I mean, I've seen the footage. Of that, and I didn't realize that's, like, how they got them. Because, like, the footage is amazing, because it looks, like, static. It's, because it's in black and white. It doesn't even, and then you realize it's ducks. Yeah. Like, when you first look at it, it just, like, static on a TV screen. And then they're like, oh, no, those are ducks. I mean, it's... I can't even tell you how many ducks are out
1: there. Well, if I can then put this. I mentioned George Purvis who did mm-hmm. the filming from '54 to '58. Claypooh got in, or Purvis got in good with Claypooh, and so Purvis went there often to film. And uh, I, when I started doing my first book, the Golden Age of Waterfowl, and that was 2001, but before that, obviously, I was doing research. I called George. He lived in Little Rock. It wasn't a game warden at that time, but I called him and lived in Little Rock. I said, George, who I am and what I'm doing? Uh, And I knew you were at Claypool's Reservoir. Well, can I interview you? So he said, yeah. He says, I live in Little Rock, so we'll meet in Brinkley at a little drive-in there. And we met, and they had a little table outside, and we sat there. Met three times over the course of several months, and he loaned me all his material, all of his video, and he said, you can take my video and you can make a DVD of it. Mm-hmm. So I took all of his video of Wallace Claypool and I did an hour and 20-minute DVD of Wallace Claypool, Wild Acres. And you'll see what we're talking about here if you hadn't seen it before. And you can get it off of my website at waterfiling.net if you're interested. Yeah,
2: and we have it at the museum. Do you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, you, you loaned it. Yeah, you yeah. gave us part of it for the museum. And it's, it's just that... That's, you know, there's no audio to it, but you just watch through it, and it's amazing. It's I also, think you with the
1: yeah, Nash- you cut my audio out because I told him. I said, "This is a rookie <laughs> doing the narration." Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah and it's also has the Nash Buckingham videos yeah. are in there. Yeah, it's. Amazing. Oh, we can
1: get into that too. That was quite interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, did the same film person do his videos, or was that filmed by someone else? Nash, Nash-
1: that was done by Forrest and Stream, the editor and owner, mm-hmm. Ed and Jay Warner.
2: Okay. Yeah, those are amazing. Yeah, and, and where that, are those? Where are the? Where are they in those films?
1: I, as I just stated, I did this DVD on uh, Claypool, but I also did a DVD on Nash Buckingham and Forest and or uh, Fill and Stream. And doing the research for Golden Age of Waterfowling, I came across that uh, Fill and Stream Ed and Jay Warner, who was the owner and publisher. They came to. Uh, Memphis in nineteen, the season of 1920-21 duck season and hunted. And they were so enthused by the amount of ducks, they said, we want to come back. So Nash was a prolific writer, outdoor writer, for those who don't know. And he wrote, I think, nine books all outdoors. Probably the most outstanding outdoor writer of all times and probably ever will be. But anyway, since he wrote for Field and Stream some, plus other ones, magazines, they said we, they got with Nash and says we're coming back in 21 and 22 to hunt. So Nash set up four hunts. He set up a quail hunt at Grenada, Mississippi. That one I won't get into. But each of these films are about 10 minutes long. They're 8 millimeters. And I got the three original canisters of the three I'm about to mention. Okay. So the first one was a quail hunt. Uh And I put that on this film. And it's interesting whether you're a quail hunter or not because you see them riding in buggies, mules, the dogs working and all of that.
2: It is interesting. And I mean, we won't get into it, but I don't think people realize the quail population, what it was at that time. And because it's uh, Mm -hmm. non-existent anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is extremely interesting. But yeah, we won't get too much into it.
1: All right. The second was a goose hunt on the Mississippi River below, about eight miles below Greenville, Mississippi. Uh, And he hooked, and Nash hooked them up with the uh, famous guy down there, uh, who ran a, a Swan Lake Hunting Club. But anyway, they hunted on the Mississippi River on the sandbar, and you can see them digging a pit yeah. in the sandbar. You can see them putting out uh, uh, shadow uh, silhouette decoy uh, goose decoys, calling, getting stuck in mud, and and the whole thing, and shooting the geese. And I see them falling. Uh, that's ten minutes long, and they it's go down amazing. in a boat land on the sandbar and they're camping on the on the sandbar in tents oh, yeah and it's unbelievable then the last one the 10 minutes is done at Wapanaka outing Club and, and Nash is shooting with his wife Irma Buckingham mm-hmm. uh and and uh and and they're shooting out of uh, out of the grass you know right. a bunch of bunch of grass with their decoys out
2: and they have live decoys out
1: and they have some live decoys yeah you could still do that they yeah, were outlawed outlawed the- in 1935 but anyway you can see the black paddlers and there's a difference between paddlers and pushers there's so much to talk about but the Wapanaka and most of the a lot of the southern clubs had black paddlers to do not only be the guides and the duck callers, folks. They were excellent duck callers, and they retrieved the ducks for them. They cleaned the ducks for them. They cooked and all of that stuff. But anyway, you can see all that going on, and there's just so much involved, and you just sit there in amazement at the old times, and you think, I think I wish I lived during that time. Uh, but the fourth, when they were going to do was Mud Lake over in Hughes, Arkansas, Mud okay. Lake Hunting Club. Okay. But I don't. I never could find that, and I don't believe that ever. Got done.
2: Okay, so this is off topic, but you might have an answer for me. And I always have wondered this. But so talking about Mississippi and Arkansas, so we have a huge um, history of like not Mississippi, but Arkansas and Tennessee of call makers. There's lots of call makers that carve duck calls and that. But Mississippi doesn't have
1: much of a history,
2: though it has a big history of duck hunting. But there are no decoys.
1: None. Uh, see, they what? didn't need decoys. Okay. They they most of, a lot of the hunting was timber hunting, and they you just don't need them in there. You know? Okay, and that's they, that's, they that's the reason. To certain, really, to, if you go way back, let's go back up in Illinois where this stuff really came from. Decoys, yes. they were big in decoys yes, and they're big huge. and, and probably the originator of the duck call. Okay, yes. uh, they didn't take when they first started way way back. They didn't need it. They just did their calls and, you know, and then they'd put out some live decoys and then they'd put out later live decoys and mixed in with the the artificial decoys, but you you just you didn't need it. That's it. They just you didn't know, need and they and so they do so. The duck call finally made it down here, and so they started using the duck call even in the timber, especially in the open water. Uh, at Realfoot Lake, where it's more open water. Uh, and of course, Real Foot used decoys. Now, I shouldn't say they didn't use them. Real Foot used decoys because so, there was a lot of open water there. Right.
2: So where were their decoys coming from? Because they weren't making them. Illinois. Yeah, they're just bringing <laughs> yeah. them down.
1: Uh, Michigan, you know. Yeah. It's just Even weird the that Coast. they never made them. No, I mean, yeah. they just didn't need them.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting. I've always wondered. That. I'm glad you had an answer because <laughs> it's, it's always bothered me. But and it's Speaking of calls, like just to, you know, which is interesting because you say they're in the woods. And that's kind of what's cool about Arkansas calls is they changed that real foot style call to fit the timber, which is a really interesting history to it, too. Yeah. Uh, So also it wouldn't break apart and fall in the water and all that stuff.
1: Well, the old duck call got started in Real Foot Lake by uh, a gentleman named Vic. Glordo, G-L-O-D-O. And the history of Illinois is is fascinating in itself. It's worth the podcast. We we have
2: one with Ryan Graves on Calls.
1: Well, anyway, the Illinois people, after they got to shooting out their place and draining, folks, drainage was a big, big issue. But they got to draining all their wetlands. And uh, the Glordo brothers, uh, Vic came down to... uh, Realfoot in 1892 and that's when they were draining his place around Fountain Bluff okay in uh Illinois just a fantastic place where he hunted and so he he was making duck calls, and he's making the Realfoot style which is a, a wooden tone board and a and a metal reed and uh so he got the Realfoot people going people like son Cochran and his and his father John Cochran and uh uh Tom Turpin from Memphis yep. and uh, Perry Hooker from Memphis all did the real foot style, but the Arkansas style. So and his brother uh, Nick, N I C K. Yes, yes. <laughs> Nick and Vic, but Vic mm. was real foot. Nick was out of Illinois, same place, Fountain Bluff. And he left. Uh, he stayed in in Fountain Bluff, but he also during the season came down to the Sunk lands in in. Uh, uh, southeastern Missouri in the, in the Boot Hill, there, and also in the Big Lake uh, in northeastern Arkansas. And he got, he, he of course, he had the metal reed, uh, real foot style, but the Oat was the one that got the really Arkansas style duck call going. Right. And it started, got going around, really around in the uh, Stuttgart area. And a guy named Ruben Slifer, S L I F E R, Probably was sort of the first in that area, okay. about 1904 or so, and then, you know, then you had everybody knows, well, I don't know if everybody knows, but everybody at Duck Hunt knows Chick Major right. and his family. Yes,
2: most and, winningest call of the calling competition. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't get, have to get into all that, but yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but yeah, he's great. <laughs> Did he hunt with any of the clubs, chick majors, or was he just? He didn't have hey, to join have a club. To. He
1: could yeah, He, he, and, he, he did. and his daughter Pat, or stepdaughter, yeah. and I'm not going to stop call her stepdaughter. His daughter uh, Pat and Brenda and uh, Dixie, the yeah. three girls.
2: And, yeah, the Dixie. They call. could
1: go where they want to, and especially Pat. Yeah. I mean, you know, the ladies back then, the uh, the macho hunters, male hunters, called them uh, Diana's or the fair nimrods and diana was the greek goddess of the hunt Hunt, back in the greek days yeah
2: that's funny and it's getting better we're getting a lot more women hunting these days yes there is and that's good it's great yeah Yeah. it's great but yeah it's it's interesting all right so this is a good point to take a little brief uh break from our conversation we'll be right back Okay, so we've talked about the Mississippi clubs, and we talked about a bunch of the Arkansas clubs, and we just mentioned Real Foot Lake, and it would be a miss of us being in Memphis, Tennessee, not to talk about Big Lake and Real Foot Lake, yes, and their influence on historic duck clubs. So let's let's go
1: there. You know, I mentioned if if you asked somebody across the country, you'd uh, you'd met, they'd mentioned if they one club, but if they mentioned there two places to go. <laughs> Especially in the real, real old days from the 1850s on, Real Foot was the place to go. And then across the river over in Arkansas was Big Lake. It was in the in the northeastern part of uh, Arkansas. And both of those lakes were created by a series of earthquakes that occurred over a period of six to eight months from 1912 uh, to 1913. And they couldn't register the uh, uh, Richter scale then, but it's been estimated anyway. They had three that registered over seven. So when they had the earthquakes between, uh, I'm sorry, it was 1811 and 1812, yeah. over eight months, uh, it, it created Real Foot Lake. And the river Mississippi River actually flowed backwards for about fi- 15 seconds, and it filled Real Foot Lake. And Real Foot Lake at the south end had a rising, high rise there, and it backed up that water and it kept the water year-round, okay? Big Lake was a little different. They didn't have that high rise on the south end, but it would fill up. And on wet years, it would stay filled up. But on dry years, it would sometimes dry up. And they could even run pastures in their cattle on it. But Little little River ran through it, okay? And then it would flood at times. Uh, but back to Real Foot, you know, just a ton of clubs. There's no way to mention all of them, but I'm going to mention some of the old ones. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> And I'm going to start out with a gentleman named J.C., and it was such a big club. I want to get into the market. Market hunting was really big, and then they got to fighting amongst each other, as they did at Big Lake. Uh, but it was so big of hunting. I said hunting started really in the 1850s, but by the 1870s, it was so big that they already had a game dealer in ducks in, uh, in that area. J.C. Burdick, he was born in Illinois, but he came to... Uh, tiptonville which is right on the mississippi river by realfoot lake on the west side in 1870 and he established the game business and fish business mm-hmm. there and then he moved to union city and then he moved to real and he had at union city he had an offshoot uh, landing and uh, dock and a fishing establishment hunting establishment where they collected stuff at real Foot lake at realfoot lake okay? okay and so he got established and then the first hunting club in Real Foot Lake was in 1897, 1897, the Louisville Outing Club. Didn't have anything to do with Memphis.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, but it had to do with Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. Because they frequented that club, as did Nashville clubs. Yeah. And as did St. Louis, uh, besides Memphis. The, one of the organizers was W Chess. He was out of St. Louis, Kentucky. And he hired the club, or the uh, started the club, and he hired game wardens. To try to keep the market hunters off of the Riftwood Lake huh. from market hunting. Yeah. Well that didn't work out. No. But he tried.
2: Yeah. And what year was that again?
1: Well, in 1897 so the club 18- was started and he, he hired them then. Okay. So this went on in the next season and then to uh, eighty or ninety eight. And chess and the club members got so fed up they just said we've we're out of here. Right. So they left, okay. And they sold it to a guy named James C. Harris. He was the largest cotton planter in the, in the Lake County. Uh, Lake County, and I forget the other county, That but they make up the Realfoot Lake. Okay. And he he, he bought it for $5,000. And he also wanted to keep the market hunters and the sportsmen off because he wanted to drain it
2: oh. and turn it
1: into cotton land.
2: Yeah, I'm glad that didn't happen.
1: The natives went to court in '02 and got an injunction to stop Harris, which they did. And uh, the the uh, effort by the market hunters to stop it was led by this game guy, Burdick, because he was happy. He yeah. was getting all the game. Right. So yeah. he led the charge and got all the attorneys so to find
2: him. where was he sending the game? Like, was he sending it to Chicago mostly and St. Louis? Well, he
1: was sending it to Louisville, Louisville, Memphis, St. Louis, Chicago, and even New York. He was sending it everywhere.
2: Okay, even as far as New York, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay. I figured that they had enough ducks up there from all the. They did, Maryland. but see, and
1: this at that time, this was about 1900. Then, okay, okay, yeah. As the eastern seaboard got shot out and drained, mm-hmm.
2: and the celery was gone, and And yeah.
1: everything progressed westward.
2: Yeah. Okay. Okay.
1: Actually, Chicago took over New York as far as being the the main game depot. Right. So right. a lot of stuff out of here went to Chicago. Other yeah. stuff out of Texas went to Chicago. And then Chicago would even send it to Europe, oh wow, as New York used to do.
2: Okay, uh, I didn't realize that.
1: Okay, so anyway, then Harris appealed to the Supreme Court to try to, and they ha- upheld the injunction. Okay, so Harris was a little bit behind the eight ball at this point. Uh, he he might as well, he said he might as well, I may, might as well make some money, so he leased it to Burdick for three years, and he got being paid a, a high royalty so much. Per number of ducks and so much number of fish. Okay, and uh, his he died. The the uh, James Harris died in 1904, and his son took over. Judge he wasn't a legal judge. That's just yeah, his, his name, name. Judge,
2: yeah, it's just a and, southern uh, name. <laughs> he extended.
1: So in 1905, the lease ran out, and he he extended Judge extended the lease to ten years. Okay, that incensed the natives because they were trying to get the market on because that caused a monopoly. So Burdick had to reduce what he get paid to the, the Game market hunters and the fishermen, because he was paying so much royalty to Harris, so that made them mad. Okay. Okay. And then that's when the terror started in 1907, with the Night Riders.
2: What are the Night Riders? I don't I don't know this.
1: Well, the Night Riders actually got started in Kentucky and Middle Tennessee over the over the tobacco.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. And the
1: tobacco. Had a uh, the the people who bought the t- tobacco from the farmers had a nor uh, a uh, corporate, uh co-op type deal, and they sort of set the price of what they would pay the farmers for their tobacco. Well, that didn't agree. Got to the point where they didn't agree with the the, the uh, cooperative people, so they started night riding, like the Ku Klux Klan. They were not Ku Klux Klan, but they had an oath, faithful oath. Uh-huh. You're loyal to us. They did the white hoods and the white robes, went around on horses, especially at night. Anybody had to do anything with a uh, co-op place, got burned or run out of the country. Well, that happened in Tennessee starting in 1907. They got fed up with the uh, low prices they had been paid by Burdick. And they started their own game buying business, duck duck buying business on real foot. And uh, Burdick got a temporary junction against that, put them out. So that made him even mad. So 1907 through 1908, the Night Riders every night was looting, burning, burning boat docks, burning the city of Sandburg on the on the do- on the right on the edge of, huh. Realfoot Lake, and killing people.
2: Oh my God! Uh, I didn't know.
1: And then, uh, so Burdick had to close down.
2: Okay, so they, what stops the night rider? Okay,
1: where does that? Come? So in 1908, after Burdick's game business got his dock and his boats and everything got burned down, they, the night riders continued uh, because uh, Drudge had formed the West Tennessee Land Company because he saw a little more power if he had more members or more people in the courts cause he kept trying to get complete control of the lake. And if he did that then he the, he could get his injunction relief and he could drain it. Okay. But he don't, didn't own, he owned all of about 12,000 acres but one little plot, okay? That's what held him up. Okay. So uh he formed a uh, joined up and formed the West Tennessee. So West Tennessee Land Company judges deal along with several others sent an attorney into Sandburg, uh which is right I said on the on the edge of the lake to uh, negotiate uh, with Harris's group to, to for some pasture land to feed the cattle. Well, the natives, the locals, used that as their cattle. So that irritated them. So the two attorneys who were representing the West Tennessee Land Company who were in good negotiation uh, with an attorney, they were staying at Walnut Log, which is right on the edge of uh, Realfoot Lake. That night... The Night Riders, about twenty of them, came to Walnut Log. Got the two attorneys, took them outside, hung one of them, and shot him full of holes while he, <laughs> he was hanging. And fortunately, or ever, he the other one got away. Well. That brought in the national guards by the governor, okay, and they then they got arrested. And a bunch of night nice riders got arrested and convicted, and that had to put the end to the night riders.
2: Okay, so then what happened? So obviously the land trust doesn't get a hold of the lake. So then what happens?
1: Oh yeah, so in uh, uh, so legal claims was given finally to the Tennessee state by the Supreme Court in nineteen thirteen. Okay, okay,
2: so right around the migratory.
1: Then the lake became a state game and fish commission. One-third of the lake was established as the National Wildlife Refuge in 41. Okay. Okay. Today, the only club still in existence, as I think I said earlier, was Blue Wing Hunting Club and Union City Outing Club. Those were very early. Those were prior to 1900. Okay. After 1900, by 1920, the two still existing was Black Jack Hunting Club, or three, Dixie, I'm sorry, two, Black Jack Hunting Club and Dixie Rodden. Okay.
2: Club. So, yeah, and they, and, okay, that's interesting. I didn't realize all that being from Mississippi, I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really interesting. How do the two opera so I know like with Real Foot, you know, you do the lottery for your blinds and certain people own blinds. So do those two clubs just own certain blinds at Real Foot? Is that No, how-
1: they had their own place. They had, they had their own, own place. Re- yeah. yeah. Okay,
2: yeah. Or lease. Or yeah. lease, yeah. yeah. So I want to, I have a, oh, this is a weird question. So we'll just go back to say, like, Osceola or, what, or Oak Dog, one of those first ones. So, to go into... You pay how much now to be a part of one of those clubs? Like, a year? What did they pay originally to be a part of a club?
1: I, 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 you know, <laughs> being a poor man, I never ask. Yeah. I don't really know.
2: Well, I just went, what uh, did they originally... I mean, I, people... Our audience I tell you, when, I, when <laughs> I went
1: to uh, Wild Wings and we were establishing our club, Wild Wings got started by a gentleman named Kanista Hodges. Mm-hmm. He's a former U.S. senator from Arkansas, and he hunted around Newport, and and he had connections with everybody because he was an attorney. He was the attorney for uh, the Walmarts. He knew all of the uh, Waltons and all those people, but he wanted to start a club in Mississippi, so he came down to Charleston and uh, below Charleston started Wild Wings in 1986. Which I joined, but he could go anywhere. I can tell you how much it cost me to join that club in 86. And you became a, a landowner. We had, uh, right. had 16,000 acres, okay? It cost me $30,000 yeah. at it costs that time. way more than that now. <laughs> it, it's probably worth 100000 now. I don't know exactly the membership, but that's pretty close.
2: I can't. How much were they paying originally, though, in the, around the, ninth, the turn of the century to get in a club?
1: You know, not over $1,500. Yeah, yeah, you know some of the fancy ones, on and that's the East. a lot
2: of money, then though. Oh
1: yeah, a oh. lot of money. Yeah, but you're dealing, you know, with clubs. You you tend to deal with the more fluent oh. and some middle class, you know. Yeah, it's like having uh, a vacation uh, home. Yeah. It's <laughs> you know we said head mouth bad mouth the market hunters, and they were they were trying to make a living, you know, during yeah. that time.
2: So. Oh yeah, and a lot of those market hunters become call carvers. Decoy makers. Duck call makers. Yeah. They yeah. become the famous guides we all know of well, um, later. If
1: we didn't have them, I'm not sure we'd have a duck call. You know, oh, know, and, and decoys. Or yeah.
2: decoys, yes. Yeah. So they all kind of spear that. And, no, they're important. their part of history is important, too. I mean, but what they were doing was never going to be sustainable. But no. what we were doing as well wasn't going to be sustainable. Things have to change.
1: So many changes, you know, um, and it's still changing.
2: Yeah, always. And yeah, it, always. it will never stop.
1: You know, the ice age started, uh, the peak ice age was 25,000 years ago. It started melting. Uh, and by 12,000 years, it was melted. And there was a land bridge between the two ice sheets, which was at one time a solid ice sheet. But the ducks got bottlenecked down below the ice sheet between the Ohio River. And, but anyway, we don't need to get into yeah, that.
2: Yeah, that's interesting stuff. So early 1900s, there is in a. Ab- Abundance of duck clubs, right? There's yep. hundreds. When did the when did they primarily start to close? Like when did it start really weeding well, out?
1: What hurt? Obviously was the Great Depression, right? Yep, that makes sense. And the Dust Bowl years during that time that those two things were going on basically from twenty nine to thirty seven or thirty eight. Uh-huh. Then you had World War One before that. Oh, yeah, that hurt. And then you had World War Two, and it all declined. I can't speak across the nation, but certainly in the Southland, it certainly declined during that time. Okay, and so that's what they. And then, and then the fifties, it picked up, and then the fifties were very good years. Okay, okay. The nineties uh, were very good years. I don't know where we are now. You know,
2: Were some of the club. were all most clubs hunting on land that they own, all private on land.
1: Both private and leased.
2: Because I would think that. Because just knowing from where I'm from in Town County and growing up there and the clubs that were around there, the ones that own their property have stuck around. But we talked about before the show started, I hunted York Woods as a, as a kid. Um, and that was all leased property. Yeah. And there was probably 10 clubs on York Woods. Yeah. And now it's all owned by one person. Yep. So I guess that's probably what's happened. A lot of it. those leases are Getting consolidated into private property, or you know, I, I, me and my brother were talking about this this year, and this is off subject, but I, I wonder what you think about it. I wonder if it is economical for the farmers down there to lease their land to duck hunters in the winter as it used to be, and I don't know the answer to that. I just wonder. We've been we just kind of you know sitting on the porch drinking wine, thinking about like you see less farmers. Hunting or leasing their property around Tallahassee County than when we were growing up, and I don't know what the cause of that would be. I don't Why? know
1: from a you know from a farmer's standpoint. I think ducks are beneficial, you know, because they go in there and they eat the red rice, and so from that standpoint they're beneficial. You know, the problems with what's going on now, it's you've got these. Uh, reaper heads that go in there and they strip stripper heads i mean they go in there with these combines and they strip all of that rice there's very little left in the rice fields and they get it out so early that's what left during the warm fall they germinate that seeds germinate so a lot of a lot of stuff is going on and thank god du is here because if du wasn't here and if it hadn't started in 37 at the end of the dust bowl and, and the depression that wouldn't be i don't my personal feelings is it wouldn't even be any duck hunting.
2: And it makes us rethink about how we're doing it and moving forward. But now, yeah. what's,
1: go- what's going on now is that, you know, that with this warming, and it's been warming ever since 12,000 years ago, uh, and it's continued to warm, the Arctic, the ducks will shift. They'll shift north, okay? So where they couldn't, they don't breed and, and uh, say, the summer in the Arctic area, they're going to start, okay, because that's warming up in the ice t- tundra, is sprouting grass for them.
2: Yeah, they're like, come. so
1: you're gonna see more breeding and uh feeding in the summertime up there. So they'll move that as a as a potholes in North Dakota, South Dakota and in uh, uh, Alberta and uh Saskatchewan sort of progress north, drying up northward. More potholes will develop up there. So you know, you you can go back and read in history. You can you know what goes on when the ice age is at a extent, where the ducks get bottlenecked below Ohio River because of ice, and and to the Gulf Coast there. You know what sort of happens there? That's how the model duck, all these model ducks, and the Mexican duck all got started. Right. They didn't need they didn't need the mon, the uh, dichromatic drake coloring because they had so many ducks. A bottleneck down there that the predators would get after and the predators were going to take care of that we're going to take that green head first right so okay. that's how the monocrap the hens are all hens in that area yeah. stay away from the predators uh and that's how why and a lot of them became non-married but there's no history on what happens between what's called an interglacial period between one glacier and when it warms up and the next glacier, there's no right. information on that. Yeah, so right. we're in a period here
2: where we're learning, where
1: nobody knows. Yeah, we're okay, learning.
2: yeah, we're learning as we go, and that's why we have science and we work on those things. Thank God. <laughs> thank God. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was really fun, and we didn't touch on half the things that we could have talked about. Please mention your new book. And I- he has lots of books out there, so yeah. um, they're I- all wonderful. So but you have a new
1: one. I have written nine books. My uh, two still in print are Waterfowling Vignette, and uh, the latest one is the Historic Waterfowling Images. Waterfowling Vignette is a bunch of topics across the United States on duck hunting. covers a lot of different areas, the Chesapeake Bay and everywhere. And then my latest book, Historic Waterfowling Images, is uh, all images with a little text for explanation, and it's 200 pages. It's tabletop 12 by 9. And you can get both of those books off of my website at waterfowling.net. or you, if you're in Memphis area, you can give them at Novel's Bookstore.
2: And just so you know, he has—I've known about your photo, photograph collection for a—it's one of the most extensive waterfowling photograph collections out there. This is amazing, and a lot of what we talked about today—the clay pool and all that's in here too, right?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. this book—the uh, image book—deals with just nine southern states it's 400 it's 200 pages the first 100 pages first 100 pages is on arkansas so wallace claypool and, and well always stuttgart the whole deal is covered uh, extensively well through 100 pages
2: well thank you so much for coming this was well, awesome well you're welcome
1: katie it's always a pleasure to be at du yeah for people who don't know uh and been to memphis or and and been to memphis but hadn't visited du headquarters i suggest you uh, make a visit out here it's It's in East Memphis. It sits on 4,500 acres of land. This
2: is amazing. And yes, if you'd like to come visit headquarters, we're open five days a week, Monday through Friday. And just give us a shout and we're happy to give you a tour. Thanks again, Wayne, for coming on the show. Thanks to our producer, Chris Isaac. And thanks to you, our listeners, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash du podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. and your dog are a team fuel is best in the field and in life with purina pro plan sport made for hard-working dogs of all ages every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina try it today and see why pro plan is the official dog food of ducks unlimited learn more at proplansport.com